My name is Gene Colan, and welcome to my studio. Each time I got a story, it was always uppermost in my mind as to how different can I make this one, and this one, and so on. And as they came in, it was, I just threw myself into it, lived another life in a sense. I tried to get into that story myself. I tried to jump into the page and try to imagine what it would be like to see it visually as an outsider. When you have it developed a style, it's as recognizable as your hand, as your handwriting. Same thing. I wanted the, the story to be sort of uh, mystifying and sinister. Hello and welcome to a creepy, crawly new episode of FW Presents, the proud anthology show of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. I'm Ryan Daly, and this is another installment of Showcase Gene Colon, my series of episodes dedicated to the many works of my favorite comic book artist, Gene the Dean Colon. Today, we usher in the month of October with a short story that Colin produced for Eerie, the legendary horror anthology published by Warren from 1966 to 1983. And when it comes to horror comics, particularly those published outside of the confines of the Big Two, I could think of no guest I would rather have on this episode than my friend, the host of The Long Box of Darkness and the co-host of Into the Weird. Ladies and gents, please welcome Mr. Herman Lowe. What's up, man? How's it going? Hey, great. Thanks, Ryan. Again, an honor to be here. I'm looking forward to talk some horror with you, as always. But uh, yeah, thanks for having me particularly on this show, because ever since you started it, I've been jonesing for a spot, and finally you came through, so... <laughs> well, I mean, I knew I would have Appreciate to have it. you on eventually, and, and when I was looking yes. at the list of his works, and I was like, oh, he did some horror anthology stuff? Well, I think that's probably where Herman's going to come in, so... Yeah, I mean, um, I'm surprised he didn't do more, because uh, I, I'm, you know, I'm off the mind that, you know, Daredevil and Marvel kind of stole him away mm-hmm. from, from the horror stuff he could have been doing in the 60s, but, you know, I'm so glad that some of them, uh, you know, came through your filter. <laughs> I knew that, <laughs> knew that it would eventually. Yeah, I really wouldn't want to trade him off of those Daredevil issues. It's just, it's like, no, no, why couldn't no, he have no, done? No. I, I know. We have talked about your horror comics roots in a past episode of Midnight, the podcasting hour. But for any new listeners, maybe who who aren't familiar with that or with you, when it comes to specific, like for horror anthology magazines like Creepy or Eerie or things like this, um, did you collect these? Were this part of your collection or your growing up experience with comics? Well, I mean, collect is a little bit of a, a strange term for a South African comic book <laughs> reader like myself because we couldn't find the stuff we wanted most of the time. You know what I mean, Ryan? So um, up until maybe 1987, you know, so I was born in the mid 70s. So I was collecting comic books at the start of the 80s. And it was hard. It was really tough because you would find a comic and then you, you know, the story would be continued in the next one and you won't be able to pick up that one. And it would be frustrating. And eventually you get it making the experience that much better. You know what I mean? But, you know, with the horror magazines, it was even worse because you couldn't find them on the spinner racks. You know, we just didn't sell them in the spin racks. We didn't sell them on magazine stands, you know, because we were getting all the surplus stuff from you guys. Uh, so they were normally two or three years late, you know, after they, they were sold in the States and then they arrived in South Africa by ship mostly. And then, you know, I remember never having any 
Savage Swords of Conan's or Savage Tales or, you know, all of the Marvel monster magazines that were so popular at the time, I would see house ads for them, but I would be very upset because they weren't on the spinner racks, you know? So what happened with me with the horror mags is I started collecting them late. You know, I had already amassed a collection of DC horror titles and Marvel um, horror titles, not their magazines, though, like I mentioned, it just stuff like, you know, uh, Dead of Night, Tower of Shadows and those kind of um, mm-hmm. anthology comics that they put out. Um, but then, you know, um, the corner stores, you know, that I frequented in my little town of Ranfantine, which was a very, very small town. There were basically like five corner stores. That's where I got my comics. So I never went too far afield. But, you know, I, I tried because I couldn't get the stuff I wanted, like I mentioned. So my mom would sometimes go to the town adjacent to Ranfantine, which was Krugersdorp. And uh, she would go there to this this huge library they had. And she would do some research for her postgrad and stuff like that. So, you know, she would take me along. And I love that library. But, you know, you get you get tired of, of reading books after a while, you know, especially when you're young. You want to, You want some comics. So I would, like, walk around that area looking at the, you know, mini marts, the corner stores and stuff you know, picking up comics here and there. And then I happened upon the secondhand bookstore uh, run by this old lady. She was actually an immigrant from Rhodesia, which is, of course, now known as Zimbabwe. Mm. (laughs) And she had this um, magazine section. Um, But it wasn't on a traditional rack. It was like on shelves, you know, so you kind of had to be told to look on top of the shelf and see what you could get. And then, you know, the magazines were in display. They were sort of heaped up. And um, I saw this magazine uh, section and this huge pile of, of stuff and the top one was a 2000 AD, hmm. you know, and so I love 2000 AD. We normally got them at the stationery stores in South Africa, you know, like um, stores that you guys wouldn't know. But the big chain there was the CNA store and you wouldn't get comics there, but you would get the magazines, you know, for kids. Mm-hmm. So 2000 AD was then considered a kid's magazine. Go figure. <laughs> Sick, but still, you know, um, and then, you know, I I obviously looked through the stack and I picked up some 2080s but at the very bottom of the stack there were maybe five or six comics that I'd never seen before you know because I, I had known Marvel and DC that was the be all and end all maybe some Charlton's here and there you know but I hadn't uh, ever heard of this Warren publishing you know what I mean so there were um, at least three creepies uh, a couple of eeries and one vampirella mm. And, you know, being a blue-blooded young man, I walked away with the one Vampirella. <laughs> <Of> <laughs> Probably based on the cover. But, you know, then I that, those magazines stuck in my mind. And I think it was like a week later or something uh, on another library trip with my mom that I went back there, uh, walked back to that store. And then, you know, I picked up the rest. And it was three creepies. I don't remember how many eeries, but at least also three. I, I walked away with everything they had because they were so cheap. And, um mm. When I asked the lady later on, because I kept going back to the store, I asked her, where did she get those? And why didn't she get more in stock or, you know, whoever? She says, no, no, because this is a secondhand bookstore. Someone dropped them off, you know, and it it seemed like an American, (laughs) you know. So that's how we got it. You know, we never got it, you know, like we did the comics. They never shipped them over. But someone who had brought his stuff over, you know, traveling, I don't know, diplomat, who knows what he did. He dropped them off at this bookstore, probably exchanged them for something else, right? So mm-hmm. uh, that's how I got my first Creepies and, and, and Eeries and the one Vampirella that I had for years and years afterwards. And then, you know, that was in the mid-80s. And then uh, it took till the early 90s for me to get a hold of some other back issues of the mags. So that's my sordid history with the magazines. I actually started very late in my comic book collecting career, like when I was a teenager, 
that's when I finally got more than just those seven or eight uh, magazines that I initially got from that little bookstore. Well, so yeah, I, I started collecting the magazines in my late thirties, so much much later than <laughs> you. Um, yeah, yeah. Like, I, I mean, I well, I, you know, being being much later to the game. I mean, it was the it was like nineteen ninety when I started going to comic stores and actively seeking out comics, and at the time with very little budget and and really kind of just focused on what was brand new, kind of being more excused. But I yeah. Like most of these black and white magazines from like Marvel and Warren and things like that, and like bigger like Treasury edition size things like that, they wouldn't have appealed to me because of just the size and the dimensions to them. Like you know, yeah. like I, I can't I can't put them in boxes like I could with with my other comics and everything like that. So I, I pass my I I distinctly remember seeing some of the cover art, especially 2000 AD. I would marvel over those covers for oh like, yeah for like you know hours just gushing over those as like painted things, but still never had the desire to really purchase anything like that yeah but, it was just but, so different yeah yeah but i mean i always i was kind of fascinated by this idea of the the horror anthology um and part of it was like right around that same time i was exposed to through the tv show tales from the crypt mm. um and i knew that that was based on a comic and eventually i would see those and kind of those actually became some of the i would get tales from the crypt collections uh and seek those out and I always remember hearing about Creepy and Eerie, but I heard about them together so often that there was a time for like years when I thought it was one book called Creepy and Eerie. Like I thought that was the full title. <laughs> yeah. It was a while before yeah. I realized, like I was like, oh, oh, there you go. It's like sister uh, titles. I get it. Yeah. So. Yeah, it's weird that they had enough artists and, you know, uh, writers. Uh, well, they only basically had Archie Goodwin at that time that did most of the stories, but that they would decide to do a second magazine, you know. So they were doing well on <clears throat> based off the year and a half of, of Creepy before Eerie came along that they decided to, hey, let's go with Eerie and then eventually with Vampirella as well. So, you know, there was such a lot of uh, artists out there looking for work part-time most of the time. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I'm glad it, it, it eventually, you know, became what it became. Because, you know, Creepy and Eerie, they they are they do stand alone. You know, they don't, right. in the beginning they were all horror. But later on, Eerie became more sci-fi. Mm-hmm. Creepy became more pure horror. But um, I, I see them in my mind as distinct entities. But like like you say, you heard about them, <laughs> you know, conjoined. Right. So obviously that created that 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 idea. No, I just um, because I found them separate. You know, I thought I didn't even know Warren published both of them at that point in time. You know, even Vampirella, I wasn't like sure who was the publisher. But um, yeah, it's funny how different you know places and different you know uh, where we grow up and how we hear about things, how that affects what we think and what we you know want yeah. when we buy a comic. But interesting, man. Yeah. There, uh, we have also talked about Gene Colan before uh, mm-hmm. on an episode of your show, The Long Box of Darkness, uh, a couple of Halloweens ago, when we discussed a couple of Tomb of Dracula issues. Um, oh, yeah. But for anyone who doesn't know. When and where did you discover Gene Colan? Right. Well, that this was. I mean, when you asked me earlier, you know, to guest on the podcast, um, I and you you said you were going to mention this. I, it's a tough one because Gene Colan for me is like guys like Jack Kirby or John Buscema or Gil Kane or those guys. You know, they he's so ubiquitous mm-hmm. um, in in the nineteen seventies and even in the Silver Age because we did get a lot of Silver Age comics. You know. In, in, in SA in the 80s as well, just because of the fact that, you know, um, like I mentioned, we, we got the old stuff that, w- that w- wasn't sold. Mm-hmm. So, you know, he's so ubiquitous. It's hard for me to 
to pin down exactly the very first comic I read of his. But I could tell you for a fact that the comic book box that my uncle gave me that started me collecting comics when I was when I was five years old, it had lots of Gene Cullen in it. It, it had at least three Tomb of Draculas, a couple of Daredevils, um, and it had Submariner stories from mm-hmm. Tales to Astonish mm-hmm. and, and some of his Iron Man work. So, you know, Ryan, this is going to be – I can't pinpoint down exactly where I saw him. But I can tell you where I completely and utterly fell in love with him. And it wasn't with Tomb of Dracula. It was with Doctor Strange. Oh, yeah. Because, yeah, Doctor Strange, um, I think my uncle's collection that he gave me, you know, he, he would only focus on horror stuff. But Doctor Strange was definitely horror during that time. Uh, we're talking here, you know, early 1974, 1975, even a little bit earlier than that, you had Gardner Fox doing some horror stories and Doctor Strange. But when Gene Colan penciled it, he, he definitely did a couple of horror stories. And I think it was from Doctor Strange Volume 2, maybe issue 5 to at least issue 20, Unbroken Run, that my, my uncle somehow managed to get, which was very hard to do in South Africa, you know, to get that, that, that unbroken line of, of, of maybe 15 or so issues. So that's where I fell in love with him because, you know, um, he had a lot of the horror sensibilities that I like, you know, mists, swirling kind of capes, flowing fluid kind of images um, that, that lends itself well to the horror genre. And then, you know, he also had, you know, this fantastic ability to draw energy effects. You know, which which I had many people don't think so. They they like the you know the the energy blasts. Let's say from uh, you know George Perez or something mm. from his Avengers or his later Teen Titans stuff, or you know maybe um, the the guys like you know from the Silver Age who perfected the energy blast form. I don't know who they might be, but uh, maybe Ditko too. Ditko had some pretty wonky and crazy effects when it comes to magic. But Gene Collins, I liked it because it looked like an explosion. You know, every time you have Doctor Strange pointing at something and he would throw a bolt of bedevilment, as he called it, it would be like his fist was exploding, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and um, I loved it. And, and it would just dissipate. It wouldn't be, have like uh, um, a, a limited scope or, you know, uh, it wouldn't be closed in to, a, you know, um, a, a, an inked effect, which closes in this energy effect. It would be like it dissipated all across the page. You know, so almost like a like a burst of light. So I love the way he illustrated that. So it wasn't just shadows for me. It was also these energy effects, which people never associate with Colin. And, I, you know, that worked so well for me on Doctor Strange. That's where I first thought, whoa, this guy, man, he's one of my favorites. I believe that run of issues that you talked about is finally going to be collected in a Marvel Epic collection next January. Uh, I believe it's the, they've, I think Marvel, the, the Doctor Strange Epic Volume 4, I think, comes out in January of 2021. And I think it's going to actually, I think it might actually start with that issue number five. Oh, um, man, that'll be, oh, that, that will be amazing. That, I've got them in the Masterworks, but I mm-hmm. do double dip all the time. Yeah. You know, because um, the Masterworks are kind of, you know, sometimes I, I don't like to pull them off the shelves all the time. So. Mm-hmm. You know, but the epic collections, man, they they read like a, like a charm. So I'm gonna oh, yeah. definitely pick that one up. And thanks for giving me the heads up. I didn't know about that. <laughs> All right, folks, we are going to take a quick promo break right now, but we will be back in a minute with our story. Don't go away. Need a podcast talking about weird stuff? Well, then we've got just the thing for you. Into the Weird, a podcast chronicling the madness and magnificence of the mighty Marvel Bronze Age of comics, featuring the voice talents of Mr. Billy Delicious, 
Hola. Mr. Herman Hellstrom Lowe. Hey there. And straight from the long box of darkness, his infernal majesty Dormammu. How are you doing? And many more. But wait a minute. You might be thinking, aren't all comics infused with a grain of weirdness? I mean, Reed Richards can stretch every single part of his body, right? And why did Ultron design the vision with working genitalia? Well, you would be correct, but Into the Weird isn't just any regular comic book show, folks. We focus on the really bizarre. Here are a few examples. A sordid sorcery barbarian grown spontaneously from a jar of peanut butter. A duck running for president of the United States. Benjamin Franklin playing hide the sausage with Doctor Strange's girlfriend, Clea. A giant-sized man-thing lamenting the death of a clown. A serial killer obsessed with killing only fools, dressed as cavalier with laser guns after witnessing a priest fornicating. And so much more. So if you like the wonderful weirdness of the Bronze Age from 1970 to 1985, and characters such as Ghost Rider, Morbius, The Defenders, Man-Thing, Son of Satan, Skull the Slayer, Kill Raven, Howard the Duck, and the weird granddaddy of them all, Dr. Stephen Strange, then this is the show for you. ITW's on iTunes, Stitcher, Podbean, and TuneIn. Hit subscribe and join us for a comic-filled jaunt into the weird. Eerie number 10 has a July 1967 cover date, but would have hit the streets on April 13th, 1967, according to Mike's Amazing World of Comics. The magazine cost 40 cents, although my copy has the number 25 written in red uh, and circled (laughs) beneath the number 40, so maybe this was actually in a quarter bin at some point. Uh, For that price, you got 64 pages and six different stories. Let me just tell you a few of the other artists in this book. Neil Adams, Steve Ditko, Joe Orlando, (laughs) Dan Atkins, and Jerry Grandinetti. Uh, Bill Pearson wrote one story, the one by Joe Orlando, and the other five stories, including the one that we're going to talk about, are written by Archie Goodwin. Oh, and by the way, Gray Morrow did the cover, which shows the specter of death, all Grim Reaper-like, with fiery red eyes, looming huge over two kind of sword-and-sorcery-style warriors in combat. The last story in the magazine is titled For the Birds. It's written by Archie Goodwin, lettered by Ben Oda, and illustrated by Gene Colan. It's a pleasant afternoon in the park, but a man named Stanhope is far from happy. An out-of-work actor, Stanhope comes to the park every day to get a hot dog from a vendor, the only meal he can afford to eat all day long. Compounding his frustratingly stalled career is the incessant flapping of birds in the park near the hot dog vendor. Every day, at the exact same time Stanhope comes to get his hot dog, an elderly man named Ivers parks his wheelchair in the park to feed the birds and pigeons from a feed sack on his lap. Every day, the birds flock to old man Ivers, and he feeds them happily. While making conversation, the hot dog vendor tells Stanhope that Ivers is supposed to be loaded, but you'd never know that by the way he acts. The only thing he does is sit around feeding the birds. This news shocks Stanhope, and as time passes, the shock turns to bitter resentment. 
Stanhope takes a morbid fascination with the old man and surreptitiously follows him about his day. Sure enough, if Ivers is rich, he's keeping it to himself. He has no family or friends. He lives a pathetic, threadbare existence. The only thing he spends money on is birdseed. Stanhope calls on his actor's training to study the old man's behavior and mannerisms, not just his schedule, but his motivation. Ivers angrily resents the fact that he depends on people to push his wheelchair, to help him get from place to place, to open doors for him. In fact, Stanhope deduces, Ivers' only legitimate joy in life is when he can feed the birds, because the birds depend on him. It's the one time of the day when Ivers isn't at someone else's mercy, but the other way around. With this intelligence in mind, Stanhope makes his move. He volunteers to push Ivers' wheelchair home under the pretense of asking information about birds. The old man is happy to share his knowledge and experience. The next day, Stanhope comes to the man with another problem in need of solving, and over time, Ivers takes on the role of a trusting mentor. On one fateful day, inside Ivers' apartment, the old man shows Stanhope where he keeps all of his money. In the refrigerator. The next day, Stanhope comes to Ivers' place with a bag, his makeup kit. The old man is curious why Stanhope would bring that, and even more curious why the younger man is putting on gloves. Channeling his portrayal of Othello, Stanhope throws his hands around Ivers' throat, toppling over the wheelchair and strangling the life out of the old man. The commotion arouses attention from one of the old man's neighbors. She knocks and asks if everything is okay. Stanhope, impersonating Ivers' voice, tells her it's all good. Then he applies the makeup and wig in his kit, disguising his face, changing his hair and eyebrows, giving himself the exact wrinkles and liver spots to make him look like a dead ringer for Ivers. He takes the old man's wheelchair and goes down to the front of his building. One of his neighbors, seeing the feed bag in his lap, assumes that it's that time of day and pushes him to the park. A beat cop on patrol pushes the old man to his usual spot to feed the birds. No one suspects that it's actually Stanhope under the makeup, nor do they realize that the feed bag is actually full of the old man's money, not birdseed. Stanhope plans to ditch the chair and take off the makeup when he's alone, but the cop doesn't leave. He walks over to the hot dog vendor and they have a chat. Meanwhile, the birds mob Stanhope, expecting their daily feed from the man in the wheelchair. Stanhope tries to shoo them away without drawing attention, but the birds become more and more insistent. They peck at the bag, and he has to clutch it tighter to protect the money inside. Desperately, Stanhope wishes the cop would just walk away, but he doesn't, so the actor is trapped in the wheelchair as the birds, starving and angry, descend on him en masse. Eventually, the vendor and the cop take notice that so many birds are swirling around the wheelchair that they can't even see the old man. That's when they hear the scream. The cop and the vendor rush into action, but the blanket of flapping feathers is too thick to get close. At last, the birds take to the air, having finally eaten their fill. The cop and the hot dog vendor stare in shock at the skeletal remains sitting in the wheelchair. The flesh of Stanhope picked clean by the birds, and the bag of Mr. Ivers' money toppled over, the bills carried away by the wind. So, Herman, what did you think of the story for the birds? 
wow. <laughs> That's all I can say. Man, this story is amazing. All right, so this is... I don't know about you, Ryan, but um, you know some people would think that this is a ripoff of uh, you know Hitchcock's The Birds. I don't think so. This is some weird love child of The Birds and Mary Poppins. <laughs> because, you know, you've got this tuppence of terror situation here. I love this story. I think it's so original. Obviously, uh, it must have been mostly Archie Goodwin, Goodwin, but you know Gene had a lot to do with this. I would say the art is what sells it for me. The story is great, by the way, but. Mm. You know, um, so many great panels filled with glorious colon pencils. I really like the fact that the, the the bad guy was a you know down on his luck actor, yeah, and that he used his acting skills to obviously get closer to this old man and try to steal his money. And then it's it just sounds very original to me. I mean, the fact that he then Lon Chaney Senior like sort of used his makeup to become <laughs> the old man, and then. The birds, the lifelong friends of this this uh, this rich old recluse, then taking revenge um, out of you know obviously it must be supernatural revenge because right. think about it he's literally picked clean to yes, the bone yeah, in yeah. a few seconds. Yeah. <laughs> I loved it. That's all I can say. It's, it's a great story, and it's so short, and uh, you know it 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 hits you hard. The impact is immediately felt. So, yeah, this is one of Archie Goodwin's best and Colin's best, I'd say. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I love this story, too. This is such fun. And you're right, it's it's only eight pages, but they pack a lot into it because there's there's like so much mood and little bits of characterization in here. That's so fun. Um, and, and you're right, Colin's art is great, and I'll focus on that in a minute. But first, just going through the beats of the story, yeah, I love what Archie Goodwin does from the first setup. We get this character. This is such a... It is kind of an original. It's got the tropes, the things that you recognize. It, like it, it feels like one of those classic things. Like yeah, like I, I could have seen this adapted into an episode of Tales from the Crypt or something like that. I could have watched this oh, like definitely. as as like a short half an hour like drama or something like that. You've got your protagonist who is hard luck. He needs money. He's he and his his financial situation has driven him to be bitter and resentful of an old man who he thinks has the means but he's not using them and everything so he just becomes sort of obsessed with taking this guy out and but it, it like his obsession like force he has to he has to weasel his way into this guy's good graces so he actually has to study him and follow him and you're right he's 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 not a dummy he's using the tools that he has in order to like you know convince this guy and you just think like you know it's it's typically one of those things like this guy this Ivers actually genuinely trusts and and likes this guy Stanhope and is friends with him and if he could just get out of his way and if he would if he would put aside his murderous thoughts you know for all you know, like this guy might have been able to help him might have given him some money or or you know might have left some of the money to him you have no idea like yeah. if if he's if the only person he's nice to all day is the Stanhope guy then if he hadn't thought about killing him then who knows where this this might have turned out all but for the best for him but no he's he's just got this murderous rage and at that point in the story where he just kills him which we, we need to come back to that page um, and then, oh, yeah. of course, you're right because then once once the our protagonist has committed the murder, it's all about how does he get his comeuppance, and it can't mm. be through normal legal means. It has to be this sort of supernatural factor that 
the the yeah. beneficiaries, the dependents of this old man. It wasn't his kids. It was these birds that depended on him. So once the old man is taken out, they need to get their revenge. And you're right. It's such a it's such a visually striking. Yeah. yeah. It's 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 a very like visual. It is a visual story, but but you know it's for me it's very original too. Like I mentioned earlier, because I can't think of any parallel story to this. I mean, there's lots of bird horror out there. We've mm-hmm. talked about Hitchcock's The Birds and maybe Robert E. Howard's Pigeons from Hell, but this is a very original bird horror story for me because um, number one, you've got this reprehensible, obviously. Um, uh, main character who you want to see die. That's that's right. uh, something that you need in every uh, classic short horror story. And then, you know, he's already got murderous tendencies before he met the old man because, I mean, that, that bit about Othello and him almost strangling the leading lady. Yeah, that, yeah. You know, when he, but that, that sort of tells me that he had this um, this inclination to, to kill before. And then, so, so he's obviously, uh, in eight pages, he's this fully fleshed out psychopath uh, and you get in the in just the first two pages, you get all of his motivations already. You know, he 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 res- like you say, he resents the world and he hates birds. <laughs> you know, that's probably why he couldn't wait for the old man to you know to leave him the fortune. He had to murder him because he just couldn't stand pretending to to like these birds and learn about them and pet them every day. So you know, um, this guy in in just a few pages, Goodwin and and obviously Cullen with his gray pencils. You know, he fleshes him out. And then, you know, it turns out that that there are some ridiculous elements to the story, but it's the kind we love, right? It's the kind where you kind of have to suspend your disbelief. This guy is some kind of next-level Roger Moore Moore from The Saint because he can disguise (laughs) himself as anything. Or or maybe I should say Ethan Hunt from Mission Impossible. This guy, I mean, he literally completely disguises him enough to fool two people who've seen this old guy daily. Yeah. Pardon the pun. And then uh, (laughs) he's like, he's got, you know, uh, mad skills when it comes to to that. He could have made a living off of that, I think, um, if he he, uh, reconsidered acting. You know, he could have just been a makeup artist. Mm -hmm. And, you know, lots of these crazy elements in the story. And then, of course, the birds at the end being the craziest part. But, you know, Colin, he draws everybody so distinctly. You know, he's one of those artists that he comes up with characters kind of like Bernie Wrightson. And then, you know, he uses an archetype, but they're completely distinctive from from what he drew before. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, from the cop to the ice cream vendor or to the hot dog vendor, I should say, yeah. to to the little gold digger pushing him across the street in a tight little sweater. <laughs> it's all of these great characters that he draws. And, um, yeah, so, you know, there's, there's so many elements, like you say, within eight pages compressed within the short little story, and it all works. There so are a, there are a couple of panels, especially in the first couple of pages. There are a couple of panels where Stanhope kind of reminds me of Colin's version of Matt Murdock, except with darker hair, with, like, dark brown or black hair. Okay, um, yeah, yeah. Colin did draw Matt a little bit uh, bulkier than... Yeah. Yeah. And let's say Frank Miller did later on or, or or yeah. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, he does look like like Matt now that you mention it. Yeah, wow, that's a good call. Um, I didn't see that because like I was just saying that he draws everybody, you know, uh every every character looks distinctly different. But yeah, he's definitely using his heroic archetype for this guy because this guy wants to be a leading man in movies so he's right. he's uh, going off of his good looks first and foremost right like hollywood right. has to do well some people have to do in hollywood. Yeah. But uh, so he drew him handsome. But you're right. He's not really. I mean, he does look a lot like Matt. Did. I mean, I, I'm I'm really thinking like like 
sort of the strong leading man jawline type of thing and kind of mm. like the, mm. the fuller body. I mean, you would never confuse the two if he drew them on the same page, for one thing, because Matt always had glasses on. I mean, that was part of yeah, the signature true, book, too. True. So, I mean, there, there's no, enough difference in the eyes where that would that would distinguish them, but kind of like the... Well, you're, you're, you're right there, Ryan, because, I mean, Frank Drake from Tomb of Dracula, he's yep, the heroic yep, you know, yep, leading the man like type. This, this guy... Yep. Yeah, you're right. He's the archetype of, of the colon version of, you know, like a handsome protagonist who in this case turns out to be evil. But um, yeah, no, no, I can see what you mean. I didn't think about that before. Yeah, but Colin definitely had a style when it came to drawing old people, when it came to drawing, you know, um, heroes or heroic looking uh, figures, and this is one of those heroic-looking figures of his. But you know, it's completely different for someone regal, like when he drew the Submariner. The guy looked totally, you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah. alien. <laughs> mm-hmm. But you know, so it's it's definitely the Matt Murdock archetype if we want to say if we want to use that uh, term. Yeah, yeah, that's a good call. Yeah, he does look like that. Just before diving into the art, I did want to mention because you actually did when you were saying it reminded me, and I actually wouldn't have even thought of this, but when I was in high school. I did write a short story for like a creative writing class and I don't remember if I was inspired by something else that I would have seen or something like that but I I think I had I think I had at the time probably recently read and I might have gotten this actually from Neil Gaiman's Sandman um but I I learned that the collective plural for crow is a murder Mm. Uh, and the concept yeah. of a murder of crows just fascinated me <laughs> so I ended I <laughs> ended up writing a story about a fugitive um, who was who was ended up being he was basically ended up being killed by a murder of crows uh, when he was trying to escape from from the law from the police or something like that. Mm, murdered by a murder. Murdered mm, by a murder. And he was like wounded and hallucinating and, and taught having a conversation with a bird the entire with a crow the entire time and it was like asking riddles and everything like that. So it was just yeah. Wow. Dude, you should have thrown some Poe in there, but that's more Raven. <laughs> yeah, 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 <laughs> no, 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 no. I'm kidding. But hey, man, I hope you get uh, you held on to that story because, uh, yeah. Um, but uh, that sounds great. Yeah, I love bird horror. I don't know why. <laughs> so you telling that story that that's great, very topical because um, we don't get enough bird horror. I'm thinking. So yeah, birds are scary for me. I don't know about you, Ryan, but over here, you know, ever since bird flu, <laughs> pigeons are. I don't know. I spend some time in London and. You know, I don't know. I just don't like them. They're they're scary. They're like you know even worse than insects for mm-hmm. me mm-hmm. personally. They're they're little soulless eyes, and yeah. you know I can stand a parakeet or a canary, but not none of these you know wild birds. Moving into the reason we're here, talking about Gene Colan's art, and there is so much delicious art throughout these eight pages. But when I got to it's the fifth story page. It's actually page fifty-seven in the magazine. I mean, I, I don't know if you would disagree. I think this is the standout page in the whole story. And like, the more I think about it, like this is one of my favorite colon pages that I have seen. Um, right. This is just such and and this is the murder scene. Uh, and, yeah. and I will there will be um, on the on the Fire and Water website. I will make sure that this page is included in the gallery. Um, it is four panels. Um, the top three are kind of laid out slightly at angles, and we've seen the first panel. It's when he comes in; he's got the the the, kit, the makeup kit in his hand, and the second panel, the middle one up at the top. The way this is framed is Stanhope's hand in the foreground, putting his glove on, 
and in the background behind him, you see old man Ivers asking, he's like, what are you doing with the gloves? And you can see his eyes, eyebrows are raised. He's got this look of concern, and the shadow from Stan Hope is falling over his head, kind of, he's doing like a cross-hatching shadow over, particularly like his, his mouth and his throat. And then the third panel, Stan, or, or Ivers is in the foreground. We only kind of see a profile of him in darkness as Stan Hope lunges for him with both of his hands. And one of his hands is actually blocking half of his face. So we just get like half of his crazy face as he's lunging with his hands out. And then mm. what Colin does, it's so perfect. The fourth and final panel, which is the murder, he tilts the panel on its side. It's like mm. at a 45-degree mm. angle. So it's like this crooked thing to mirror the fact that the wheelchair has fallen over and the man has fallen over. The whole world has fallen over because we're now entering this realm of our main character is a murderer. The whole world has kind of gotten crazy. So he tilts the angle of the panel, and it's this thick, thick black uh, border around it. And just the art in that panel, as we see, like the wheel is in the foreground, and and Stan yeah. Hope, he's he's there, and he's he's partially shadowed, and he's gritting his teeth. He's got crazy eyes, and he's choking this man's life out as like the the wrinkly old hand is reaching to try yeah. and stop him. Yeah, God, it's I'm a saying, gorgeous page. <laughs> it's a it's a fantastic. No, no, that's true. You know, like he really experimented with panel um, layouts and borders here in this in this issue. I mean, mm-hmm. it's not just this page, but the entire issue that's got these. Uh, wonky strange panels i think it's it's indicative of the guy's state of mind you know he's yeah, he's, yeah. he's cracking he's um gone insane and this reflects his uh you know his psyche but you know this panel like you mentioned the fact that he made the final panel border black mm-hmm. signifying death and this old man you know uh, uh allowing the darkness to take him this is just is brilliant you know colin is like a master man when it comes to not just the art not just the imagery but you know, just the layouts of, of the story, the beats of the story, the, you know, the way he times it, it's, it's just perfect. I wish he would have, he could have worked with someone like Alan Moore or something, you know, because, oh, God, um, yeah. you know, obviously these days, Alan Moore's not everybody's cup of tea, but I think 80s Alan Moore, you know, uh, wow, a DC or, man, it would have been amazing. But Colin was fine all on his own. He was, he, he was a genius all by himself. I'm just saying that, you know, Wow. But, um, yeah, I agree with you, Ryan. That's the best page. How could that page not be the best page? There are many good pages, but this one is definitely one of the colon pages that I've remembered for years in my head, the strangulation scene. And then Archie Goodwin's writing, you know, just, just you know, enhancing the whole effect by saying that, you know, <laughs> this leading lady, this is what's running through this guy's mind at the time, that this leading lady had complained that his grip was too tight when he played Othello and he had left marks on her neck. Yeah. Now you can really, really see how he was an Othello, like strangling this lady. And now he's finally, you know, fulfilling his dream or whatever of really killing someone. Yeah. Oh man. And just, just look at the guy's legs, the old man's legs in that panel. Okay. You don't see his head, or his body at all. He's being strangled, but his legs look like they're kicking. Yeah. He's, you know, kicking and he's out, got like, almost slipper. like he's about to kick his sandal off or something or a shoe exactly. or something like that. Exactly. Yeah. And this gnarled old hand is like pushing against Stanhope's uh, chest. You know, it looks like mm-hmm. a claw because it's lost in the shadows of his, uh, of his jacket. Oh man, well, what a what a great page! And you know, we we know Colin can draw wheelchairs well because he drew Quincy Harker's wheelchairs right, so right. well. But this was long before that, of course. But you know, still, wow! I love the way he draws like the intricate little you know metal rods connecting the 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 bottom of the wheel to the to the frame in the middle. Mm-hmm. It's just it's just scary good. Mm-hmm. Wow. And from there, you're at like the the angles, the borders become a little bit thicker, and as he's putting on this makeup and. 
And yeah, and, mm. and I, I even think on it's on the, the magazine, page 59, it's page 7 of that story, the shot where he's at the park and the d- birds are kind of surrounding him and the cop is talking to the hot dog vendor. You can sort of tell that like he, he, he looks a little bit different. Maybe there's some like sagginess of like the the makeup or something like around it. He doesn't quite look the same. It might just be like the, the maybe just a different angle or different picture. So maybe that's Colin trying to say he's not identical to yeah. Ivers, but you know enough that you know a, a passerby who maybe doesn't look him in the in the face that much wouldn't know the difference. But yeah, no, he's not, he's definitely saying that this guy is different enough to arouse the suspicions of the cop and the hot dog vendor, but not. I mean, but he's good enough to obviously let them think, you know, okay, this is just old Mr. Ivers uh, looking a bit disheveled today, <laughs> more disheveled than usual. Usual, But, you know, I'm thinking that, you know, Colin, like you said, did give a nod to the fact that we're not complete saps, the comic book readers, that he does, in <laughs> fact, want to put an element of suspicion in there. And you can see that on the faces. Mm-hmm. I mean, look at the hot dog vendor, like, uh, you know, with his chin in his, in his hand and... Mm-hmm. You know, he's not completely sure what's going on here, but there's something's not kosher. Right. And, um, you know, Colin does portray that one image a little bit differently than what, you know, Mr. Ivers looked like before his death. So obviously there is, like you say, uh, Colin's art is good enough to make that distinction, at least in my mind. Right. But it might also be wishful thinking. <laughs> this is a horror story. So we, we're expected to completely believe that these birds, <laughs> you know, anything can happen, basically. But they picked well, this guy clean. Yeah, but I mean, like the bottom panel on that on that penultimate page, you know, that that last panel, when you just see all of the birds and basically just overwhelming, and all you see of Stanhope are the eyes. It's just yeah, eyes getting yeah. bigger as he's like, um, <laughs> this yeah. is. You, you know, at that point in time, the terror that I felt because you know Goodwin's writing has completely put us into the shoes of of Stanhope at this point in time. We're living, you know, vicariously the the experiences through his eyes, right, Ryan? So I mean, that's how well he's written. Um, you know, it's almost like a Stephen King character, right? Yep. You can really yeah, yeah. put yourself in his shoes at this point in time. So, you know, my, my the terror that I felt at this point in time was, oh, shit, you know, the birds are going for the bag. Yeah. And the cops right behind me. The bag's not filled with bird seed. It's filled with the cash. So, obviously, at this point in time, I'm thinking if it was me, I would be like thinking, oh, shit, they're going to rip the bag. Mm. And, you know, the, the, the notes are going to go flying all over the place. <laughs> you know, so mm-hmm. that does happen, in fact. But, of course, that's the least of his worries because what did, in fact, obviously the birds were out for murderous revenge. But like that you say in that panel, you know, he's still thinking they're just after the bag. You know, he's he's just still thinking you won't get fed. You know, get out of here, you vermin. You know, that kind of thing. But then the scream right on the very next page. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Oh, man, it's brilliant. And, yeah, That's just it. nothing left there but the skeleton. Like, you can see his skeletal hands, too. Like, they picked every bit of flesh off of him. And... Yeah, man. And and look at the way that Colin tilted the skeleton's head. Like, it like yep. he was trying to get away at the last moment. You yeah, know, trying yeah. to Because this is a guy who can walk. Mm-hmm. You know, this is a guy. He, he literally didn't have time to get out of the chair. Yeah. You know, before the birds picked him clean. So he's, like, tilted to the side, you know, like, as if he wanted to get up. But couldn't quite make it. And look at his skeletal little fingers. Like, you know, there's nothing. Not even a shred of flesh left. And then he's still clutching the wheel of the wheelchair as if he wanted to roll himself away or something. Um, And the cop and the hot dog vendor's expressions. Wow, it's gold. (laughs) I can't believe what I've seen. Mm -hmm. 
So yeah, no, I'm from the beginning to the very end. You know, ever since that murder scene in the beginning, and then as it escalated to the final comeuppance, it was, you know, it's a, an awesome effect that yep. Colin managed to convey here. Yeah, I, I can't say anything more. I mean, I, I knew I wanted to do a horror, one of his horror stories for the month of October for this, and I wanted to include that in, in the series of showcase jingle so i just i really i i found this this issue of eerie kind of at random just because i knew that he had one story and i had no idea what to expect so then when i actually read this story i was like this was really really enjoyable um Mm. just a fun classic little horror story that you know was worthy of you know could have been could have been adapted and made into a short little film oh yeah Um, like an inch yeah 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 and um, and just yeah, great, great art. Love what what Colin did with this one. So, yeah, I had a blast reading this one, and and thank you very much for uh, for reviewing it with me. Yeah, man. But I'm looking forward to hearing more about uh, Colin's horror stuff from you, Ryan. It doesn't necessarily have to include me. I know you've got a host of uh, other horror experts, um, and I've been enjoying listening to them on midnight. So, I mean, there's still more Colin creepy and eerie tales that, and everyone's as good as this one, I would say. Yeah, I mean, uh, most of them are written by Goodwin because it was in the early days of Creepy and Eerie. But, um, yeah, I'm looking forward to more Gene Colan horror. Because for me, you know, being the fan that I am of, of horror and Dracula, Tomb of Dracula, Colan is a quintessential horror artist who was, you know, w- went to superhero comics. And he excelled at superhero comics as well. But his style, you know, lends itself to horror. So, mm-hmm. you know, that's why I'm glad you had me on this this episode, which is basically the first of Colan's horror-esque tales for the independence, you know, the, the magazines of Warren. All right. Uh, any final thoughts on the story or, or Colin before we go? Yeah, I think I've said everything I can. The only thing I would um, reiterate, I think we mentioned this on our Halloween episode where you, you, you joined me talking Dracula. I love Colin's black and white stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I love his original pencils. I love looking at it. And I love it when he inks himself. And he mostly inked himself on the, on the Warren magazines. You know, uh, for me, uh, Colored Colon, you know, inked by Tom Palmer or Frank Giacoya or just on his own, it's brilliant. But his black and white um, work is especially striking. And uh, this is one of those. This is just my happy place for me because this has all of those things in one uh, little eight-page story, plus Goodwin as a writer. So, yeah, this is near perfect. If I had to give a score, I would give it 11 out of 10. (laughs) (laughs) So that's my final thoughts, Ryan, yeah. Uh, very very cool where else can people find you Herman if they want to hear more of your thoughts on be it colon or anything in the realm of horror or the weird well we've got two podcasts uh, one that I'm doing with my friend Billy Delicious Doc Strange on Twitter that's Into the Weird where we talk about Marvel Bronze Age weirdness uh, that includes Doctor Strange and all those wacky titles that Marvel came up with in the 70s and then I've also got my other show which I co-host with Misty Graves um, um, and that's the long box of darkness where we talk about horror all across the board. So DC Marvel, and of course, uh, the independence and image and all of those uh, modern horror titles too. We're trying to work that in. And of course, we're going to be pretty busy for the month of month of Halloween. So I'm hoping, uh, folks would, uh, enjoy listening to a couple of our shows and yeah, that's it. And then look for us on Twitter. You and I were very active there. Uh, Ryan, I'm at Into Weird and at Dark Longbox, um, and we hope that any listeners can join our conversations, horror-related conversations. <laughs> uh, thank you so much for coming back and, uh, and joining me on this episode. It's always great to talk to you about stuff like this. It was a pleasure, Ryan. Thanks again. 
Okay, listeners, we're going to take another short break right now, but I will come back in a minute with your comments on the last episode. Don't go away. Annual Halloween party canceled. Haunted house shut down this season. Then come to the house party that no force can stop. The house of Frankenstein. The Supermates are throwing their annual bash, no matter what, and inviting some of your favorite horror stars. Lon Chaney Jr. Anyone who enters here without my permission will be considered a trespasser. Lionel Atwell. By heaven, I think you're a worse fiend than your father. Christopher Lee. Don't use long words, Inspector. They don't suit you. Evil and anchors. We haven't been able to contact Count Alucard so far. Peter Cushing. I've told you before there are times when you shouldn't be alone. Bela Lugosi. He's mine. He don't belong to you. You go away. Barbara Shelley. There have been seven murders committed in the forest of Bandorf in the past five years. Basil Rathbone. But of course I know who did. Haven't you heard? The monster. Kiefer Sutherland. Maggots, Michael. You're eating maggots. How do they taste? And Boris Karloff. (laughs) Plus a few party crashers. Notice anything unusual about Santa Carla yet? No, it's a pretty cool place. If you're a Martian. Or a vampire. And some amazing friends. Dragon time! Poor thing! Let them take care of your friends, my dear. I'll take the robot. You take the wolf thing. Good. I've always had a way with animals. So RSVP to fireandwaterpodcast.com, iTunes, or Spotify, and don't miss the one Halloween party you can count on to be scary in a good way. Not the 2020 way. The House of Frankenstein. Alrighty, I am back with your comments from the Fire and Water website, which, as always, you can find at fireandwaterpodcast.com. The last time I gushed over Gene Colan art, I did so with J. David Weeder discussing Batman issue 343 and a story called A Dagger So Deadly. Uh, a, a big mystery casting kind of a pall over that episode was the villain's company name, Rennington Steel, predating the TV show Remington Steel. How could this be? We couldn't figure it out. Rennington Steel sounds so much... It's got to be a play on Remington Steel, right? But it's before the show. Well, that mystery was solved, and we all felt rather foolish when Rob McCarthy posted, Guys, Remington Steel is a typewriter. Uh, Dave Weeder came back to say, thank you, this has haunted me since we did the episode. Uh, and then Dave added his shame because he learned to type on his stepfather's Remington typewriter. I, yeah, I think I'm the same. I can't believe I didn't think of that either. I, too, might have learned on a Remington. Uh, we did get our first computer word processor when I was young, but there were a couple of years when I was learning on a typewriter, and I think it was a Remington, but that was so long ago I can't be sure. Uh, Captain Entropy also responded to the Remington Steel thing, painting his comment with pulpy prose for the occasion. Uh, Alright, moving on. Chris Franklin, my co-host on Batman Nightcast, as well as JLUcast, House of Franklinstein, and several other shows here on the network, he said, I thought for a second I had accidentally missed a Nightcast recording. Thankfully, J. David Weeder brought the bat goods. Yes, he did. He really did. Um, Chris then said, I will be honest, when Colin came on Batman, I didn't really care for his work. It was too ethereal and challenging for my then six-year-old brain. Of course, as my mushy brain coalesced, I began to appreciate that Colin was probably a better fit for Batman than nearly any other superhero he'd ever drawn. Uh, I still haven't warmed to Klaus Janssen. Uh, I just don't really care for his style, although I think it melds with Colin's work more than most. 
I, yeah, I'm one of those people, it's harder for me to even identify inkers, unless there's like a, a specific kind, like I, I just generally don't recognize different inking styles as well as some other people do. Um, but I do know, I mean, I can spot Klaus Janssen's fairly early, or fairly easily. I kind of, it, it depends. Sometimes I like it, sometimes I don't. It might, it, it depends on the penciler he's working with. Uh, Wardhill Terry said, Like Chris, I needed a little while to get used to Colin's Batman. I compared everyone's Batman to number one, Neil Adams, number two, Jim Aparo, number three, Marshall Rogers. Well, those are the three gold standards, I would say. Um, Terry says, No artist got an easy acceptance from me. By this point, Don Newton's Batman was the standard, as far as I was concerned, and Colin was vastly different from Newton. Eventually, I became accepting, but I preferred the more dynamic inks of Alcala or Jansen than Smith's. Regardless, any Colin on Batman was wonderful. Conway does a nice trick with this story. It's a done-in-one with a new villain that gave Batman a chance to do a little detecting. For new or casual readers, he provides some bat gear, which, however maligned and mined for cheap jokes, is what people want from a Batman story. For regular readers, like I was, Jerry lays in some soon-to-be-harvested seeds of upcoming stories and gives us a Bruce Wayne who has a life and has human needs, like sleep. This is a good, solid comic book. Uh, Brian Linton might have cracked another mystery from that issue. Why did Batman use the Bat Boat to retrieve Dagger's dagger from the sunken Batmobile? My theory is he needed to use the Bat Boat in the solving of a crime to maintain his trademark on the aforementioned Bat-branded vehicle. He obviously let the trademark on his Bat scuba gear slip, which is why he was stuck using standard scuba equipment in this issue. In the end, it's all about maintaining the brand. Uh, and then Brian says, disclaimer, I am not a trademark lawyer and have no idea if that's how trademarks actually work, but I'll pretend that's how they work in comic books. You know what? That makes perfect sense to me. So, uh, In fact, Captain Entropy came back to add a similar thought. In my head canon, Dave's joke about the underwater knife retrieval being an excuse to use the bat boat would be correct. When you have all that specialized gear, you have to get it every so often to make sure it's still operational. Conway could have even included a thought balloon to that effect. Damien Droy Whiter said, It's interesting to hear your opinion of Gene's DC anchors. I think we can safely say that we completely disagree. Klaus Jansen would have been one of my favorites from that era, and I always thought Bob Smith made Gene look a little bland. I remember reading a Meanwhile column from the early 80s when a fan wrote in and said that they should swap Bob Smith and Alfredo Alcala so Bob was inking Don Newton and Alfredo was inking Gene. Dick Giordano replied we had to remember that Batman featured longer stories than Detective because of the Green Arrow backup strips, so they couldn't swap as Alfredo was capable of producing more pages than Bob. He added that even if that wasn't the case, he would have assigned the same people. This means that Dick Giordano agrees with you, but I agree with the letter writer. It's weird how much personal taste comes into it. <laughs> I, I, yeah, I, I, maybe I would have to see Colin with Alcala and, uh, and Newton with Smith to actually compare. It might have really, looked really, really good. And Siskoid from the Fire and Water Network said, You said this was a good one-off, and for spot discussion like this, that's useful. I myself recently posted an article on my blog about Batman being exhausted, also drawn by Colin. But what would you say is the best of Colin on Batman? The Nocturna Night Slayer stuff? Uh, yes. Um, now, 
keep in mind, by my own admission, I have not read all of Colin's Batman and Detective run. I haven't read every issue, but I've read a good chunk of it. And I do probably think the high point for the dynamics of his art, as well as just the general storytelling, would probably be the whole little vampire uh, mini-story arc in the middle with the Night Slayer and Nocturna. I do think those are some really, really great, really just fun, wacky 70s stories. Uh, or, or, I guess, what, early 80s? Um, but for another one-shot or one-off that I really, really liked, uh, it was at the end of his run, it was Detective Comics 537, I think it was another one-off uh, that Colin drew, which was about... Um, Batman basically finds this homeless man living in a sewer, uh, and he he kind of hears this whole sort of heartfelt story because this this guy in the sewer has discovered this dead body, and and Batman's like, I, I have to take you out. You can't live down here. This is terrible. He's got like this little platform surrounded by water that he sleeps on, um, but in this tunnel, like this guy, he tells his whole story about living in Mexico and just using discarded garbage like popsicle sticks and other like wooden boards he's created this entire model of his village he's this incredible artist and and it's really like somebody that you would just easily not think of somebody like this because of uh, his living situation and his his financial straits and and it's just kind of like a, a really special kind of heartwarming story that batman can see this guy and and what he's capable of so that was a cool little story um, but overall, yeah, to, to the question, I would say the best of Colin's stuff on Batman is the whole Nocturna storyline. So, all right, folks, the next episode, the plan is to review the very first Doctor Strange comic that I ever read. And you might recall that I said the exact same thing on the last episode, uh, cause I had to switch some stuff in the schedule, but until then, Thanks again for tuning into this episode of FW Presents. If you enjoyed our discussion, please support the show on social media by liking or favoriting the posts on Facebook and Twitter. You can leave a comment on the episode at fireandwaterpodcast.com. You can always go to Apple Podcasts and leave a nice five-star review for FW Presents or any other show on the Fire and Water Network. If you really like us, consider sponsoring the Fire and Water Network on Patreon. For more information, head on over to patreon.com slash FW Podcasts, and as always, thank you for listening. When you see me fly away without you, shadow on the things you know, feathers fall around you and show you the way to go. It's over It's over Nestled in your wings My little one Is special Morning brings another sun Tomorrow See the things that never come today When you see me fly away without you Shadow on the things you know Feathers fall around you 
It's all.